0: When we come to the politicians, people often say, well, what what we need is more scientists in political leadership positions.
1: This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard 2001 Medicine Laureate, Paul Nurse.
0: But I actually don't think we have to have that. I think that we just have to have a political class that is prepared to listen to science and to understand what it is and not retreat into populist one-liners.
1: Physicians may say they want to follow the science, but Paul Nurse is a man who knows how to lead it. He sees leadership as a duty and has served as the president of the Royal Society and as the first director of the Francis Crick Institute for Biomedical Research. For his own research, he shared the 2001 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine with Tim Hunt and Leland Hartwell for discoveries of key regulators of the cell cycle. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel international partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. Now let's hear our conversation with Paul Nurse. We'll start via the exit, Brexit. Brexit.
2: It's a kind of funny time to be speaking right now anyway, because it's so worrying. Um, The second wave of the pandemic really seeming to take hold in Europe, in the UK, in particular Brexit about to loom large. Um, You're such an optimistic person. I've always admired and loved your optimism. It it must be hard to be optimistic just at this moment.
0: Well, I think it is difficult. I mean, we are, uh, particularly in the UK, we have the coronavirus, which is not only damaging the economy and all other activities, including research activities, but also is getting a bit depressing. There's a sort of malaise. And that's something that's national. I feel it a little bit in our institute, although my institute here, the Francis Crick Institute, is working at almost 100% capacity. So we're very privileged. But then that's combined with Brexit. The country was really split 50-50 about whether the UK should leave the European Union or not. And if we'd have sort of accepted the decision that the electorates voted to leave, but it was so split that it should be a very gentle leave, that's been completely ignored because what we've got is actually almost as um, extreme response as possible with possibly a no deal whatsoever, which for sure is going to also very significantly damage our economy, probably between five and 10 percent. The economist's tell me. I know it's difficult to predict these things, but um, between 5 and 10%. So you're right, it's a bit depressing. However, you're right, I'm an optimist. We will get through it. We may be damaged for a while, but we will prevail in the end. But I think you're right, it's going to be a bit of a rough several years.
2: We, yeah, we need optimism like yours to keep us going though. That malaise has several threads to it that you mentioned. Let's, let's sort of pick up on some of them. First of all, Brexit, easily dealt with, I suppose, but it's going to be blow for
0: science, isn't it? It is. I, I mean, the, the starting point is the economy, and, of course, science depends upon um, uh, uh, financial support. And, I mean, it's not that cheap, so it does require um, healthy economies to get the right investment into science. So that's one part of it. A, a, a perhaps more... Um, I, I was going to say more important part. I mean, it, it certainly equal, I would say, to the um, financial difficulties, is the image of what we, in our country, the UK, is presenting to the rest of the world, because Brexit has around it an aura of turning your back on the rest of the world. Um, I know it's not always seen as that is it's turning back on Europe, but actually it's turning back on the rest of the world. And also, for that matter, turning back the clock to uh, a time which no longer exists a sort of nostalgia so we have a combination of turning away and turning back clocks which require perhaps a bit of education for our whole nation including our political leaders because i have no doubt that we will return to the european union and i have no doubt that this shock of cold water that we're about to endanger ourselves with will be a correction to that and we may get a more realistic position in the world But back to science. I mean, the UK is very good at science, but science is highly international. And this turning away from the rest of the world is not good for it. Once again, because I'm an optimist, we will get through it. We will work out informal relationships with other countries in Europe, on continental Europe, and we will get through it. But I can't say that it is the best position to be for maintaining a very high quality science endeavor.
2: It's interesting because at this particular time, of course, politicians are worldwide saying they're being led by the scientists and the science in respect to the pandemic, obviously not over Brexit. And that brings us to this question of the conversation between scientists and politicians. How much do you think that statement that governments are being led by scientists is true these days?
0: Well, I think politicians are saying that and I think they meant it. Or, or at least those that said they were following the science, There's some politicians in the world who didn't even pretend they were doing that. I mean, Mr. Trump would be one, and um, Brazil would be another, for example. But I think they, they meant it. But there was a certain naivety, perhaps, in uh, the politicians who said it, that they don't fully understand how science works. And I think it's worth explaining that a bit more clearly. We are taught science at school like it statements are chiselled in granite, Um, on a piece of stone. And of course, that is the case for certain parts of science, quite a lot of science, like, for example, Newton's laws of motion, certainly work unless you get very fast, and they work extremely well. But they've been tested endlessly for 300 years and been found to work. When we're faced with research problems, we often haven't got a clue how anything works and we get it wrong quite a lot of the time until we get it right. And the whole process of science, certainly what was emphasized by Karl Popper, for example, the philosopher of science, is that you come up with a hypothesis, an idea, you try and test it to destruction. And if it's destroyed, you move on with the knowledge that that isn't the right way forward and look at something else. And so there's a lot of testing and then changing one's mind, and then over time, certainties uh, emerge, but they don't always emerge straight away. Now, when you're faced with something that's very important to society, like a pandemic, uh, society suddenly wants to have all the answers 100% crystal clear, and they think of Newton's laws of motion. When actually scientists don't really know what's going on and there's different opinions about science because of the, that uncertainty. So when a politician gets up and says, we are following the science, the question has to be what science? Because there's more than one scientific conclusion out there at this moment and they are all, um, not unreasonable or not. Some of them are extremely un reasonable, like those that suggest 5G is the cause of of, uh, coronavirus. But there's quite a lot of very sensible people saying rather different things. And the poor old politicians got to sort of make sense of this. And it's not made easier if they think all scientists are talking with the voice of God, because at that stage, they are absolutely not. And it's going to change. So what does all this mean? I think it requires a more sophisticated relationship between science advice and the politicians and political leaders being advised by it. Scientists have to emphasize that knowledge is often tentative at this stage of an understanding, particularly in a pandemic. It may change, and they shouldn't be overconfident about what they're actually saying. And uh, uh, scientists are perhaps not used to talking in the public sphere so much in this very, very uh, public way. Um, We're used to disagreeing with each other in academia and in the scientific discourse. But it doesn't play out quite as nicely on the public stage. And politicians are to be forgiven if they take certain ideas away. Then, when you combine it with the fact that these have immediate political consequences, uh, by which I mean that um, whether you have a lockdown or you don't has economic um, consequences that we have to think about as well as health consequences. And then you'll find those uh, in different places in the a political spectrum will have opinions about how important they think the health of the nation is versus perhaps the health of the economy in the nation. Then what they do is start challenging those scientific opinions which don't happen to agree with their political views. Yes. So the whole science endeavour gets mixed up with political uh, opinions. And that's really a bit of dangerous for the scientific endeavour. Mm. I've always argued as much as possible, and I know it's very difficult and we can't always get it to work, is we should keep politics out of it as much as we can. I mean, we're you know all human beings are political to some extent, so I, I fully accept that. But when politics starts driving which science you listen to, you're in trouble. We saw that with climate change, for example, and where politics was certainly driving it. We see it now as to whether we open up the economy or whether we um try and protect health. Yeah. Basically, we should try and keep the different opinions of science out there and then let our political leaders who were elected to do this to make sense of it. But what they have to do is not say we're following the science. They should say science tells us that there's one, two, three, possibilities going on we have decided to go for option one and these are the reasons we've done it because of scientific opinions and because of the political consequences of it and this may change as our knowledge increases now that isn't a tabloid headline one-liner it doesn't go down well with the politicians or their communicators but that's what we have to do if we're going to have a mature relationship between science and politics
2: it's funny, isn't it? Because I think people in their own decision-making at home, just the questions of every day, are very sophisticated in the way they think about what needs the, the different aspects of each decision. But then perhaps it's a, it's a misconception that people just want simple stories from their leaders, whereas perhaps they're much more equipped to deal with sophisticated
0: argument than people give them credit for. Well, I'm of, in the same position as you. I think we need to treat... Um, uh, the public with much greater respect and I think they will respond to it. Of course you have to use language that isn't so loaded with, um, um, with specialist terms that it is incomprehensible. Of course you have to work on communicating the clearer messages Frankly, it's not that difficult to do that. You know, we don't need to know, is it SARS, blah, 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 or SARS, something else. I mean, you don't need to know that. You need to know what the problems are and how you're dealing with it and how we might um, get somewhere. We also can't have this, I'm an optimist, this relentless optimism that we're doing the best thing in the world we're going to have a vaccine by september we're going to have um, a treatment um, next week we're going to um, have an app that will solve it and then within days it collapses mm-hmm. how can you trust the politician or their advisors when we have to listen to that sort of nonsense so treat the public seriously you have to explain it simply it cannot be just one single headline that's the populist see In a way, you could say both Brexit and the response to the virus are maybe made worse by populism, the notion that you don't actually really explain things, you respond to popular emotion and you just deal with populist remarks. So you have, in the case of Brexit, you know, get Brexit done well, yes, we've got Brexit done, we're out, but we certainly haven't got any way of working in a new Brexit country. I was waiting for um, get COVID done. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I'm waiting for that to come out, but that's not yet <laughs> happened. But I think there's a, a there could be a, a relationship between uh, the way that the pandemic is being handled, and of course I'm talking in a UK environment, um, and the way that both COVID and Brexit have been handled, because they reflect some of the stark weaknesses of populism.
2: Yes, you pointed out at the beginning of that, that when you're taught science in school, it's as if it's chiselled in stone. And is part of the problem that the politicians themselves have really not got the basic science education that allows them to understand the nature of science, because what you're asking them to do is to represent the true nature of how scientific thought advances. Are they equipped to do that? Who can help them
0: do that? Well, first of all, I think the, it, it's a responsibility of the educational system to, uh, to communicate what science is. It's not just a collection of facts, like there are eight planets and um, we're 93 million miles away from the sun or whatever. Mm. It's also about how science is done. And the words I quite like, in at least at the frontiers of science, is that science is often tentative knowledge being tested and being changed. And communicating that message will uh, help subsequent communications of of very difficult issues such as this pandemic. So it's not just the politicians, I'll come to them in a moment, but it is actually all of society. And given that our our lives are more and more ruled by um, technologies which are based on science and things that we can now do as a consequence of Knowledge of science and thinking in medicine and so on, these problems, these issues about when somebody's alive or dead and all these sorts of issues, they're going to increase, they're not going to decrease. So we need a community, a society that that understands this. When we come to the politicians, people often say, well, what what we need is more scientists in political leadership positions. And of course, we do have some like Angela Merkel understands what science is because she's a scientist. But I Actually, don't think we have to have that. I think that we just have to have a political class that is prepared to listen to science and to understand what it is, and not retreat into populist one-liners. They've got to absorb the complexities. Politicians have to absorb all sorts of complexities, put it together to make a decision. It's not just science, it's economics, it's social sciences as well, and behavioural sciences. They are there to integrate that and to come to decisions. But if they simply retreat into, we're following the science, this is the headline, now all go away and just trust us, that isn't going to work. And what we have seen in the pandemic, certainly in the UK, but I sense it uh, throughout the world, is a a gradual um, loss of trust in both the political class and the science advice that they're getting, because they don't understand just what we're talking about here, about the tentative nature of science. So we are damaging What is going to be crucial, I would say, that is the interaction between science and politics in the future by not being sophisticated enough in understanding um, that relationship.
1: What does it really mean to be alive? Paul Nurse takes on this and other tough scientific questions in his recent book entitled What is Life? Understanding Biology in Five Steps. The book shares its title with a work by another Nobel laureate, Erwin Schrödinger. That 1944 version of What is Life inspired a generation of scientists, including Paul Nurse, who first read it as a schoolboy. First of all,
2: that question, what is life? It's a question that many have thought about in the past. We all think of Erwin Schrödinger. What is so fascinating to you about
0: that question, what is life? I think that... It's the key question in biology, really. <laughs> and it is so key, it's almost um, it's almost the question that we never ask. After we get in school, the age of 16, there will be some um, chapter in a book on what is life, and then we forget about it. And I wanted to return to it, having been a biologist for very many years, and address it. So part of it was that. Part of it was that it's a question that I wanted as many um, of the public to think about who would, could be bothered to read the book. In other words, I haven't written this book for my peers. Schrodinger's book was probably a bit tricky for the general public.
2: I'll say, yes.
0: Yeah. You know, aperiodic crystals and um, so on. Mine is, I hope I don't avoid difficult issues, but it is really written for people who are prepared to commit time to it. But I think many people could understand, not perhaps everybody, but many could. So I wrote for an audience of, I was always thinking of a 17-year-old thinking about the world, but actually written in a way that I hope would cover a much wider range of the public than a a more academic tone. So it's not academic Mm -hmm. in that sense. It does deal with concepts that, will last i mean what what is striking is some of these ideas are centuries old and i find that a lot of science popular books are just always looking around the corner just over the horizon and usually they fade away they get it wrong they're predicting this that or the other and nothing happens this book i've written just like schrodinger's really although as i said it's a more uh uh, for the general reader i i suspect could still be read in 30 or 40 years and it would still um, have value because uh, of the way it's written. I'd hazard to say that it would last considerably longer than that, because, as you say, it's
2: rooted in deep history, centuries of science, and you and you define these these fundamental principles of life, which are um, not going to go away. I wanted to ask about one of those. I think it's your final principle, the interconnectedness of life. It's a nice one. Talk about that.
0: Well, I will talk about it, and um, because I. Unusually for a molecular cellular biologist, I do talk about the biosphere and the importance of maintaining a healthy biosphere if we're to maintain a healthy life. And that's very popular. The ecologists will talk about it. Naturalists like David Attenborough um, are doing a fantastic job on it. You don't, however, get quite the same emphasis on it from a molecular cellular biologist who tend to talk about medicine or whatever they don't broaden it into this sphere of activity but what struck me it was two principles really one is evolution by natural selection and what darwin said we're all related by descent what that meant is we're connected to all life on the planet because uh, there are relatives is how i like to put it i mean it sounds sort of a bit corny. But obviously, we're a relative of a gorilla or a a, a chimpanzee or an orangutan. You can see that. But in reality, we're related to everything. It's just that some some of the the, uh, biosphere around us, we diverged a very long time ago. And I I make the comparison with the yeast I've worked on. And and of course, it's 1,500 million years, which is quite a long time. So these are our relatives. And therefore, if we consider ourselves to be, and some would argue that we shouldn't think that way, but if we consider ourselves to be the peak of evolution that we have on the planet, then we have a responsibility for all our relatives on our planet. Then the second point, the one that you mentioned, is that not only are we related, but we interact with the entire biosphere too. We're completely dependent upon it. Uh, That emerges from me thinking a bit about how you define life. And I consider a virus, which is sort of actually I come to the conclusion it's sometimes alive and sometimes dead, in fact, which is a bit of a cop-out, I realize. But the main thing I emerge from that is a virus is dependent upon other life forms to behave but actually we are all dependent on other life forms human beings eat um, plants they eat animals without them they would die we rely for our well-being on uh, the natural world we rely on maintaining an environment that allows the biosphere to prosper and so we have to recognize we interact with life all life on the planet therefore we have a second reason for protecting it And because it's for our own good. And I end the book with those two messages. This is important. And maybe, uh, I mean, certainly Schrodinger wouldn't have gone in that direction. And most uh, molecular biologists tend, tend to stop short before they get there, I would say.
2: It's a principle of such importance for our stewardship of the planet. And for the way we view everything, right down to, as you say, viruses and even the coronavirus that we're all battling now.
0: Well, I think it is. And in a sense, you could say the book is, I set out to explain what life is to as many people as I could. And also to make the argument that we have to be good stewards for the planet, exactly as you said. So I did have a a double purpose there. Mm. The second one only emerged towards the end. (laughs) That's- except i do I do dedicate it to my four grandchildren and say um, over to you you 've got to sort it out well, so in fact, the book,
2: although written for the general reader, may be an appeal as maybe this podcast is an appeal to um to some specialists
0: to turn their attention to biology more well, it is there it 's a sort of hidden. A hidden message I wanted there because I, I though I said I wrote it for the intelligent 17 year old or at least the interested 17 year old, I think others will read it. And they, I want some bits of it maybe to um, excite them in the way that you've just described. And I, I'm not, I don't have a manifesto there. It's, I mean, this is typically British, isn't it? It's rather understated. It's sort of, you come across it. I'm not making a song and dance about it really. But if there's something interesting there, then maybe somebody will respond to it. The weakness of my uh, argument is I don't know what to do. I think there's something there that needs to be done, but I'm not quite sure how to even start it. So when you said, you know, I have all the resources at the Francis Crick Institute and so on, it's true, except, of course, it's very bottom-up run, so I don't sort of direct things. But if people came along who were interesting in this sort of way and also practical, then I'd certainly be interested. The real perhaps question is to sort out those who are really interesting versus those who just want to sound interesting. There is quite a number of people who just sound interesting when they're not really interesting. And I could even accuse myself of that, perhaps sounding interesting without really saying anything.
1: Paul Nurse is keenly aware that good research requires solid organizations. So while he's continued to conduct research, he's also held posts such as the president of the Royal Society and president of Rockefeller University in New York. In 2010, he became the first director and chief executive of the Francis Crick Institute, a biomedical research organization dedicated to understanding the fundamental biology underlying health and disease.
2: Um, You have these two roles. You are... um a hugely successful research scientist who has found that you're also incredibly good at organizing people and getting things done, (laughs) to to borrow Brexit phraseology. Sorry for that. Was it a surprise to you to find that you are incredibly capable when it comes to bringing things together, not least the Crick Institute, which I see behind you on this in this Zoom conversation, busy people walking along the corridor there and getting, moving equipment around? It's, it's a nice backdrop to the conversation, but there you have your Crick Institute. Did you know that that was in you when you started
0: out as, as a research scientist? Well, you know... I'm a bit schizophrenic about this. I mean, if, if you were to ask me what really gives me satisfaction, it is, it is doing my research. I mean, I, I'm towards the end of my re- research career and I'm no longer as creative as I was 30 years ago, but it is still what drives me. I'm still wake up in the morning thinking about what's happening in my little yeast cells, which I have researched for so long. But I did find that I was quite good at organizing things and getting things done. But I've never had quite the same satisfaction about that as I had about making a discovery. Uh, I have to admit to that. Sometimes I try and get inside my brain and, and, and try and find out why I do things. and I, I, I'm going to explain how I think it is. I realise that I had been funded all my life and supported all my life to pursue my curiosity to find out aspects of how the natural world works. I look upon this as an enormous privilege. I don't look upon it as something as a right. I look upon it as a privilege that I have been supported just to follow my curiosity. And I felt from the very beginning, even when I was a graduate student, if I was going to be um, supported in that way, I had to give something back that was more Real, something that was more practical. Now, I could have made a decision to work on a disease like malaria, where I, or something, where I was actually doing something practical. But I didn't want to do that because I wanted to be driven by my own curiosity but what I found was that for some reason that I don't fully understand I was quite good at um at organizing things I don't do a lot of the the heavy lifting myself but I'm prepared to take responsibility for it identify people who are good at it and uh, and try and drive things forward and I also can work With a wide range of different people with quite different opinions and try and get the best out of them to get something through, a sort of diplomatic sort of role, if you like. And in a very fundamental way, I felt that that paid for me to pursue my curiosity on the other half of my life. So half of my life is still pursuing my curiosity, and that's on the other side of the wall here um, where my laboratory is, and half of it is doing things which I think are for the public good, like setting up this Biomedical Research Institute, running the Royal Society, running research institutions like um, Rockefeller and Cancer Research UK before that. Mm -hmm. And that is my paying my debt to society that is allowing me then to pursue my curiosity for the other half of my life. Now, that has kept me in a sort of moral balance, I suppose, an ethical balance, at least inside my head, uh, as to why I pursue both of those things. But if I had to choose, I would um, I would just be a researcher.
2: It's fascinating that you think that there is this concept of payback for being a research scientist, that I think a lot of people who are research scientists perhaps feel, yes, that they're in a very privileged position, but at the same time, they're doing good work. And that is justified, that there isn't a concept of having to to do something on top of that in order to yes, to pay back for this privilege. And it's also very interesting that you have this concept of service. It's perhaps rather rare these days, the idea of having to be sort of socially responsible and service should be a part of one's one's life.
0: Well, I feel it very strongly. I don't quite know where it came from. I, I didn't come from an academic background, which might have might have changed my sort of view of it in the sense that that would have been seen as perhaps enough and i sort of feel that by the way i i don't criticize other people who don't have the same position as myself but i came from a a different sort of background and i just remember when i was a graduate student thinking unless i was very good at what i did i couldn't justify just following my curiosity that was one thing and the second is every opportunity i should pay it back that i could and. And that's um, that's been the way I've worked all my life, really.
2: What actually turned you on, as a final question, what turned you on to biology and this path in life in the first place?
0: I was interested in the natural world and how the natural world worked. My first um, glimmerings of that were to do with looking... Um, at the night sky, really, looking at, at planets and stars. And I had a little telescope when I was 9, 10, 11. And uh, that was what attracted me. Then I started noticing the natural world, the change in the seasons, what happened to insects, how they metamorphose from one state to another. And so I was pretty immersed in, in an interest. In that natural world and and the sciences. I'm actually interested in the humanities as well, but that was always a sort of background compared with this. And as I got a little older, still at school, I thought, well, which way should I go, the, the physical sciences or the biological life sciences? And what I thought was this, I thought, well, in the life sciences, because it deals a lot with particulars and details, you are always able to contribute something. And in the physical sciences, it always seems so immense, the problems. <laughs> you feel that you're a bit more of a cog in the wheel. And I remember this came across, started thinking like this when I read uh, in a sort of naturalist sort of handbook, and it was suggesting projects. And it said, why don't you go around your garden and map where spiders' webs are? I remember this very clearly. And what do you learn from the distribution of spider's webs about spiders and what they're doing and why they put them in certain places, okay? Which I did. So I wandered around the garden, I mapped them, and I began to think, well, this might be a place where flies will get caught and so on. And then at the end of this, I thought, I discovered something myself. Where just by looking in my back garden, and this is what biology is, whereas with physics, you've got to have the Large Hadron Collider and, uh, you know, a a many-kilometer ring. I know it isn't quite like that, but I felt uh, even if I wasn't that great a scientist, if I was just an average scientist, I'd be able to contribute something in the life sciences in a way that I couldn't in the physical sciences. So I think that's why I ended up there.
2: Lovely story. And um, really very hopeful, very optimistic end that that anybody can become a discoverer in their garden. Paul, thank you very
0: much indeed. That, That was a great little interview. Thank you.
1: You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt Hinterland for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henrickson, and I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This episode is from season two of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarven, Spotify and many, many more popular platforms.